Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comic books, films, and fiction. I'm Herman Lowe, your horror host for today. Join me as we take a look inside The Long Box of Darkness. Hey there, constant listeners. Welcome back to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in pop culture and beyond. I'm your host, Herm, and this is episode three of our spine-tingling season two. It's been ages since the last episode of Lod, but we're finally back this October, just in time for Halloween, with a regular weekly show, and I hope you'll stick around for what we've got lurking in the podcasting crypts for you. So if you're tuning in for the first time, here's the rundown on the Logmox of Darkness. In every episode from now on, we start by sinking our teeth into some comic books, particularly one comic book, be it an issue, a collection, or a story arc. And then we'll switch gears and maybe dissect a movie or two, sometimes a TV show episode, whatever's catching our fancy that week. And for the grand finale, we'll delve into some weird fiction, which could be either a short story or a novel that's hopefully likely to haunt your dreams. So what's on the horror menu for today, though? Well, uh, first up, we've got something that's sure to tantalize your taste buds of terror. We're diving into Charlton Comics' incredible horror line, which has given us some real obscure gems over the years. And then next, we'll be zooming over to the world of anime with the first entry on my 31 days of horror list of movies that I have to watch this October. It's part of the 31 days of horror challenge, which I've only completed once in the last seven years. And this time around, we'll be talking about Satoshi Kon's unsettling anime masterpiece, Perfect Blue. It's a mind-bender that uh, marries psychological horror with the complexities of identity and fame. And it's a film that's as beautiful as it is terrifying. So if you've seen it, you'll know what I mean, though. And as for our weird fiction finale, we're tipping our hats to the great Ray Bradbury with his classic short fiction collection, The October Country. Uh, Because after all, there's nothing like a bit of Bradbury to get you into that Halloween spirit, right? And just wait, we'll get to the Halloween tree and something wicked this way comes down the line eventually. So for you Bradbury fans out there, hold your horses. But for now, it's the October Country, which is my personal favorite collection of his. All right, so let's kick things off with our very first segment, which I've decided to call... It came from the long box. Okay, so we're frolicking through the pages of Charlton Comics this week. And this uh, issue that we'll be looking at specifically today will be Scary Tales number 13 from 1978. 
another favorite of mine. It's actually the second ever Charlton comic I bought as a kid. Uh, why didn't I talk about the first Charlton comic? Well, because I don't have it anymore. It's an issue of Monster Tales or Monster Hunters, I should say. But we'll get to that eventually when I manage to track down a back issue. That one was not that good, though. This one is the one that's firmly embossed in my memory. Uh, so the sentimental force is strong with this one, folks. But before we get to the uh, rundown of the issue, let's talk some Charlton comics in general for a bit just to give you a bit of history. Uh, now, the name might not ring as many bells as Marvel or DC does, but for connoisseurs of horror comics, I think it's a name wrapped in mystique. Uh, but let's be honest, also a lot of low-budget practices. But hey, it's not the size of the budget that always matters, is it? It's how you use it, right? <laughs> so, Charlton Comics was operational from 1945 uh, all the way up to 1986. And these guys were kind of like the indie band of the comic book world. They often scooped up material from defunct companies uh, or they paid creators low rates, that kind of thing. Uh, but don't let that fool you though. What they lacked in dollars or in prestige, they made up for in creativity, often with tons of dark humor thrown in. So they offered up some enjoyable reads, that's for sure. And one of the earliest horror hits that they had was a comic book titled The Thing. And uh, it's only vaguely related to John Carpenter's The Thing, possibly more related to the 1951 film The Thing from Another World, uh, both of which, that and Carpenter's uh, film, were both based off of the 1938, I think it was, novella, by John W. Campbell Jr. And that was entitled The uh, Who Goes There. So this comic book featured your typical monsters, aliens, other beasties that defy description. And uh, it did quite well for them. And then uh, in 1954, eventually Charlton did some more comic book bargain hunt hunting and they acquired titles from Fawcett Publications uh, among these were uh, This Magazine is Haunted and Strange Suspense Stories. So they kept these babies going by mixing Fawcett's inventory with their own new stories sporadically. Um, like, for instance, This Magazine is Haunted had Dr. Haunt as the horror host. He guided us through each story. He was kind of like a Rod Serling of the comic book world at the time. Uh, totally unlike the horror host over at EC. He was more suave. And, uh, of course, there were strange suspense stories, um, which I mentioned earlier. They didn't have any hosts, but a lot of crime, a lot of mystery, uh, and a lot of disturbing stories that would scar the life out of most kids growing up in the 50s, probably today, too, the kids who haven't been desensitized by video game violence. Uh, now, post-1967 after a lengthy break due to the horror uh, ban initiated by the Comics Code Authority restrictions, boo on that, Charlton came back with a new horror lineup, and it had titles like Ghostly Tales, Ghost Manor, uh, The Many Ghosts of Dr. Graves, and each title was hosted by a pun-loving um, horror host again. They were all quirky characters. Examples would include... Uh, 
folks like Mr. Bones uh, from Ghost Manor, this animated skeleton butler with a devilish mask. And then there were was Dr. Uh, M.T. Graves. M.T. Graves, get it? <laughs> Who hosted the many ghosts of Dr. Graves. Uh, he's like a friendly physician kind of character who investigated supernatural cases. And then there's Mr. I Am Dead, <laughs> who hosted Ghostly Tales, this uh, skeletal narrator who wore a top hat. Winnie the Witch, she was pretty popular. She was uh, over at Ghostly Haunts, and she was this uh, modish kind of blue-skinned witch uh, who haunted an old house. And then Baron Werewolf, who was the host of Haunted. Later, the title would be become Baron Werewolf's Haunted Library. He was this kind of like a hunchbacked ghoul, not a werewolf himself. So a bit of a deceptive name there, but still a lot of fun to read. And then finally, my favorite, Countess R.H. Von Blood, who hosted Scary Tales, which is the title we'll be talking about today. She was this alluring kind of female redheaded vampire in a tight-fitting little number who seduced readers with lots of tales of blood and gore. So right up my alley there. And then Charlton, they were known for their writers, uh, but probably mostly known for their artists. Still, the writers were quite uh, well-known at the time. Joe Gill, he was one of the most prolific writers of that time in the early 60s and early 70s, or in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and he wrote stories for Captain Adam, Peacemaker, Judo Master, The Phantom, etc. Uh, but he also wrote a lot of horror tales for the Charlton Horror Mags. And he also, I think, co-created popular characters, uh, Michael Mauser, E-Man, along with Joe Staten. So, um, yeah, he was well-known. And then you had Denny O'Neill, of course, who later went on to write uh, Batman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, lots of other comics, even at Marvel as well. Iron Man, I think, Daredevil. And he wrote at that time for Charlton. He wrote Blue Beetle, Thunderbolt, Fighting Army, I think, Fighting Marines, maybe. But specifically, he wrote a, uh, quite a few stories for the horror line as well. And then Nicola Cootie. He was probably the most well-known Charlton writer, I guess. Um, he was actually an award-winning writer. He also edited a lot of the stories. and um, He worked on E-Man, Moonchild, uh, Space 1999. But then uh, most of his output was for the horror, horror tales. So uh, what about the artists, though, that, that really made Charlton famous? Well, of course, we had Steve Ditko. Co-creator of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange over at Marvel. He's He was working for Charlton for years, though, even while uh, working for Marvel. And he drew stories for The Thing in the 50s. And this magazine is haunted, Strange to Spin Stories, which we mentioned earlier. And then, of course, for the subsequent titles, Ghostly Haunts and Ghostly Tales and so forth. Now, of course, his distinctive style was what made him so perfect for horror. Those angular figures of his, those weirdly expressive faces, <laughs> dynamic horror compositions to his pages is just amazing. Lots of tension and drama and those Ditko offerings from Charlton. And then you had 
artist Pat Boyette. Um, he drew many tales, and he's a fantastic artist in his own right. Uh, Midnight Tales, Many Ghosts of Dr. Graves, Ghostly Haunts, Ghost Manor, all of them featured his art. Uh, now, he often used photographic references, which garnered him some critique. Uh, so he had a more realistic style. But for me, that's part of that aesthetic of the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s horror, especially uh, associated with the Charlton comics. So I don't mind that too much. And even Jim Aparo, the great DC artist who would later become famous for his uh, run on Batman and Batman and the Outsiders and Aquaman and many others, Phantom Stranger, he uh, started at Charlton. Some of his earliest work were done there. And uh, of course, as we mentioned before, Joe Staten, very famous for co-creating E-Man and Michael Mauser. He penciled many horror tales for Char Charlton. And then my favorite of all the artists who worked over there, Tom Sutton. I love him so much. Um, and he also worked for Charlton during this time, even while working for DC uh, and Marvel too. He did some Doctor Strange stories, of course, and uh, for DC... House of Mystery, House of Secrets, uh, lots of other stuff. Classic horror artist up there with Bernie Wrightson and Mike Plug in my estimation. So all of these guys made Charlton a relative success. And uh, now to get back to this issue that we'll be talking about, um, before you hop out of your seats and go dig up some old Charlton comics, uh, just focus your attention for a moment Charlton's Scary Tales number 13, this seminal horror issue from my childhood. First off, if you want to see what we'll be talking about, go to darklongbox.com where there will be a podcast addendum post and I'll be posting lots of images from the issue and you'll be able to uh, soak it in. Um, or if you have the copy yourself or want to hunt it, track it down, do so. It's worth it. It's a great issue. Now, the cover itself is absolutely stunning. It's spectacular. Uh, it's done by Alfredo Elias. It mirrors the contents of the first tale. And we see this werewolf stalking this lone damsel through the woods with these very earthy colors of orange and brown and black bleeding through the page, giving this kind of eerie feel. It might be at twilight. It might be you know, around there. It might even be you know, nearing the dawn. It's just a fantastic page. It looks like it could be a painting um, done a hundred years before, probably, if they <laughs> were interested in painting that this kind of uh, material uh, or, or subjects based on this material. So this, the, the main story, though, which is the one we'll be spending most of our time on, is entitled Grandma, is titled Grandma, What Big Eyes You Have. Now, this obviously alludes to the Red Riding Hood and, uh, you know, tale with the big bad wolf. But the story, though, is nothing like the fairy tale. So it's written by Joe Gill with art by the cover artist Alfredo Elias. And it tells the tale of this sinister character named Jimmy Wolf. And Jimmy returns to his family estate. That's Wolf with an E, by the way. Um, so why is he returning to this manner 
Well, uh, he's been promised an inheritance by his dying grandmother, uh, but he secretly harbors plans to do away with her himself, even though she's already 102 years old. Um, she's at death's door, but I guess patience is not one of old Jimmy's virtues, right? So as he arrives, he meets the this ancient uh, but still sprightly butler, and um, the butler is accompanied by this uh, beautiful young housekeeper uh, named Miss Redding, who's been taking care of Jimmy's ailing and bedridden, permanently bedridden grandma. And um, his grandma uh, gives him an audience and she tells him that he's set to inherit everything um, and he can stay here with her until she passes, but he can make himself at home though. Um, He can go anywhere on the grounds, anywhere in the manor, except into the basement. Now, this very... Uh, caveat makes Jimmy want to venture into there all the more and he resolves to do so as soon as he's able so what is lurking in this basement readers or listeners so uh, afterwards Jimmy decides to ask the alluring Miss Redding to dinner as he's attracted to her but he becomes furious when she snubs him (laughs) and then strangely For us at the time, Jimmy vows that since she refused to have dinner with him, she will instead become his dinner. And uh, this is soon explained, the statement, when later that night in his room, he strips off his clothes and undergoes a familiar hairy metamorphosis into, you guessed it, of course, a werewolf. Hence the name Jimmy Wolf, his family name. It turns out that all the male members of the wealthy wolf family are in fact cursed with lycanthropy. And um, Jimmy is one of the few members who revels in it. He stalks Miss Redding through the woods, intent on dining on her tender flesh that night. But he's dismayed to find that she has in fact come prepared and sports a pistol loaded with silver bullets. Um, which she uses to fend him off. Now, having been shot in his arm by the trigger-happy would-be victim, he retreats to the family manor and he binds his wound. This is all done while he's returned to human form. And then he decides to investigate the mysterious basement. Now, while doing so, he makes a startling discovery. There's a bunch of his living male relatives chained up with silver manacles down there. And uh, one of them reveals to him that their grandmother had in fact lured them to the manor with promises of inheritance only to capture them. And um, she's bleeding them dry and using their plasma to create a serum that gives her eternal life so you think this is a twist folks wait till the end now hearing this jimmy vows to do away with his witch of a grandmother before she can um chain him up and he promptly enters her room and smothers her with a pillow but then the second twist crashes into this plot (laughs) like a werewolf crashing through a skylight here The old woman that he just murdered was, in fact, a fake. She was merely a hired crone from the nearby village. His 
Jimmy's real grandmother is actually the young and miss and beautiful Miss Redding. And she enters the room in a fetching floral dress, just as this revelation happens upon Jimmy. And um, she has her silver-loaded sidearm firmly in her grasp, and she's intent on forcing Jimmy back to, well, should we call him her grandson at this point in time, back to the basement where she can proceed to bleed him dry and uh, keep making the serum that she needs to live uh, eternally. But Jimmy, having none of this, he triggers his werewolf um, transformation and attacks her. And this prompts Miss Redding to pump him full of silver bullets. But this happens just as his massive form crashes into her. All claws, fur, fangs, there's blood everywhere. And then uh, the next day, the story ends with the old butler and the local constable happening upon the grizzly scene where we see a monstrous dead werewolf lying next to the skeleton of a woman in a floral dress at the foot of an old woman's deathbed. Now, if that isn't a tale, then I don't know what is, listeners. Whoa. Pretty good one, right? Still keeps my attention to this very day every time I read it. And then the second and the third stories in this uh, issue, a little bit of throwaway tales. They were both reprinted in Midnight Tales, I think in 1972, earlier in the decade. But um, pretty good in their own rights as well. You've got The Golden Apple, written by Nicola Cudi and drawn by Joe Staten. And it tells the story of two evil children seeking a magical apple in a forest called the Werewoods. So a little bit of a werewolf connection there as well. And the apple has the power to grant those who eat it shape-shifting abilities. And this is according to an old woman that the couple of kids met earlier in the tale. Now, upon entering the forest, uh, the kids realize that come dusk, the woods become malevolent. So when they finally do find the golden apple, they have to eat it to escape the horrors stalking him in the woods, but they are then instead transformed into golden apples themselves, which the old witch woman that they met earlier, who told them the tale of the golden apple, she then gathers them up in her basket with a little snicker. (laughs) So another great twist there at the end of the golden apple. And then the final story, also a good one, chronicles the tale of a haunted grave. Now, this is again written by Nicola Cudi, but this time it's illustrated by the legendary Tom Sutton. And um, this story, very atmospheric, tells the tale of a yearning, haunted and open grave who wishes for the body of a beautiful murdered woman to be interned in in him. Um but yeah, he first became aware of this murdered woman when she was almost buried next to him by her her murderer, who turns out to be her stepfather. And uh, this haunted grave then takes it upon itself to exact vengeance for this woman's murder. And in the end, uh, he is rewarded, or it, I guess it's a he, <laughs> it must be a male in this case, I don't, I'm not sure. But the grave is rewarded by having the body of his love buried within him. So kind of a disturbing story, 
Yeah, very disturbing, but enjoyable. And like I said, the art is off the charts. So that's just a small sampling of some Charlton horror for you listeners. I hope that this will galvanize you to go out there and buy some of those old back issues and read them along with the long box of darkness in the future. We'll definitely be covering more of them. Alas, no Countess von Blood in this issue acting as the horror host, but you can't always get everything you want, right? Yeah, so track down some of those old Charlton back issues online or rifle through the bins and boxes at the comic stores or the conventions you frequent. Trust me, they're fun if you haven't yet read them. So a tip to the hat to the old Charlton comics of our childhoods. All right, so that's it for the first segment. Now stay tuned for what's coming next. Part two of our show, which I've decided to call The Cineplex of Terror. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? was a pop star. This is Mima's last performance with Cham. Who desired to become an actress. I really hope that I can entertain you just the same as an actress. But sometimes, aspirations can be deadly. I'm always watching Mima's room! In the world of make-believe. This is when Mima proves herself. The price of fame. Don't worry, Mima, it'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence is lost. Dreams become nightmares. And privacy no longer exists. Where everything you do can be seen by everyone. And those you trust are really those you should fear. Your life no longer belongs to you. Excuse me. Manga Entertainment presents Satoshi Khan's animated psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? All right, we're back with our Cineplex of Terror segment. So, listeners, First off, imagine this. You're giving up your career as a pop idol to become an actress. And then you find yourself stalked, impersonated, and wrapped up in a murder plot. Now, this sounds like a plot of some psychological thriller, right? Well, it is that. Perfect Blue is, at its core, a psychological thriller, but it's also so much more. Now, I was first introduced to this movie by a really good friend uh, in the early 2000s, and he uh, was a big fan of anime and manga, and at that point in time, I was not yet a fan. I loved things like Akira and Ninja Scroll, but that was it. I had not even seen any Hayao Miyazaki So I was still very much a take-it-or-leave-it kind of anime guy. But this film really convinced me to give every new anime offering a go because it is layered. And it's a very 
intense experience, very disturbing. And I still vividly recall it to this day, even though I've probably only seen it three times since the first time I saw it. It's not a film I would want to watch often, but it is an incredible experience. So if you haven't watched Perfect Blue, please do so. Maybe for this Halloween, who knows? But let's get into the story. Uh, Mima Kirigo, our protagonist, she does what every teen idol eventually does, especially in Korea and Japan. She grows up, leaves her pop group, a group called Cham, um, and her dreams are of hitting it big as an actress. But the path to stardom is twisted, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, her first role is a minor part in a crime drama called Double Bind. And this doesn't impress her manager, uh, Rumi, very much. So uh, her manager is also a former idol herself. So you know you're in for some unsolicited advice here. Uh, career advice, that is. So as if that weren't enough, Mima's also got a deranged fan called Mimania, <laughs> who's sending her threatening messages. And I shouldn't laugh about that because this happens in real life to, to stars. So still, just the name. <laughs> you know, it always gets me. And then there's this creepy uh, website called Mima's Room. Uh, it's a digital diary where uh, someone posing as Mima details her innermost thoughts and daily life. So it's kind of like a, a deep fake before deep fakes were even a thing. And uh, I think that carries its own, own stamp of horror, at least for me. So uh, I guess fame has its price, as we all know, but Mima pays the price in this film with her sanity. So she's pushed into this increasingly provocative uh, career as an actress where she has to uh, do these uh, roles which require her to move beyond what she uh, sees herself as capable of. For instance, there's a role where she ha it includes a rape scene and a nude photo shoot. So um, as this happens, reality starts to warp and Mima begins to see visions of her idolized self. And this um, vision taunts her, uh, claiming that she's a phony. Um, so it's a little bit of Black Swan meets Inception, I'd say. But of course, all animated. And meanwhile, while all of this is happening, um, people around Mima, people in her life, start dropping like flies. So at first the police suspect Mimania, the stalker, but we're in for a real twist here. So I'm not going to spoil anything here, folks, but you got to watch it. It's um, really a compelling piece of work from Satoshi Kon. Now, the film storytelling techniques are kind of revolutionary. There's a lot of quick cuts. There are a lot of quick cuts, flashbacks, a lot of dream sequences. Uh, all of them sort of combine to contribute to the film's sense of disorientation. Um, there's a haunting soundtrack by, I think his name is Mas Masahiro Ikumi, that really makes your skin crawl in the best way possible. So lots of elements that combine to make it a classic. But what's it really about? It's not just about horror or a psychological thriller. 
as it's built to be. It's an unsettling look at fame and uh, the malleability of identity, especially in a digital age. Um, and it explores the lines between the public life of a famous you know, star and also a, their private life. So it's kind of like a, a twisted view of reality where nothing is what it seems. So uh, there you have it, folks. We've gone from Charlton to Perfect Blue. I know there's not much of a uh, similarity between those two topics, but uh, I included this movie because it's the first one on my list for the 31 Days of Horror Challenge, and I happen to have watched it uh, just a couple of hours ago. <laughs> so that's why I included it on this uh, list on the podcast discussion. So um, for the future, though, I'd love to let you listeners know that I will be taking recommendations if there are any movies or TV series, streaming or otherwise, it doesn't matter, that you want me to talk about. Send your uh, recommendations to contact at darklongbox.com. And then I will consider them. And of course, I will also read any uh, messages and feedback you give me live on the show. Also give you a shout out on our socials and also mention where folks can track you down if that is what you want. Uh, now it's time for our third and final section of the show, our weird fiction segment. And I've chosen to call this one The Book Nook of Doom. So don't go away, listeners. We'll be right back. In order to become excellent, you first have to be mediocre. And uh, I believe in raising children with all these fabulous junks. Because I was raised on them, I found they were good food, and they helped me to grow. Uh, you have to have a little of everything. You can't appreciate Shakespeare until you've read Edgar Rice Burroughs. And you need both of them in your life. You know, I spend my evenings changing styles from reading Shakespeare at the start of the evening and reading James Bond at the end of it. There's, there's room in your head for all this. It's not going to contaminate you. It's not going to corrupt you. And uh, it gives you then such a complete education that your subconscious doesn't, you don't have to stop and think mm -hmm. and prevent your subconscious from moving when you're writing because you have all these styles within you. All right, time for some Bradbury talk. One of my favorite authors of all time, my absolute favorite short fiction writer, Ray Bradbury, an American institution, <laughs> if you can call him that, a legend, definitely, and uh, my favorite collection, the October Country. I've never spoken about it before. I think I've mentioned it on previous shows ages ago. I haven't done a blog post about it on darklongbox.com yet. Uh, I still need to, but I will get to it for now. We're talking about it on this week's episode. So I recently reread it um, for Halloween this year. I should have read it during Halloween, but I wanted to get to some other new material as well. And it's a quick read even though it includes 19 of Bradbury's best stories in it. Um, but let's get to them. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, this will be definitely uh, an eye-opener. I'm sure for you horror fans out there who haven't sampled it, you'll want to pick this up as soon as I'm done talking about it. For you old fans of Bradbury, um, I hope that you can relive some of the joy you felt when you first read it or in subsequent rereadings as well when we speak about it. So, um, of course, uh, Bradbury, known for his works like Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles, 
but he steps into horror quite a bit as attested by, you know, something wicked this way comes and the book that we're talking about now, the collection, The October Country. But also it's interspersed throughout his other short fiction collections as well. And um, it offers up some of his most haunting tales, The October Country does. So here's a quick rundown, uh, just a, a lightning synopsis of the 19 short stories found within its pages. Um, all brilliant, all masterful. I'll get to, I'll mention which ones are my favorites later on, but really there are none that have a weakness in my estimation, at least. So up first, the tale that opens up the collection, The Dwarf. So uh, not a politically correct name for a story. Um, so in this tale, a little person visits a carnival hall of mirrors and he sees a reflection of himself that's life-sized. And then the owner of the attraction exploits the little person's desperation for this moment of normality and um, revealing the horror of it all. And of course, that's not the whole story, but you kind of have to read it if you haven't yet to to get the full emotional impact that it delivers. Uh, up next, number two, The Next in Line. Uh, this is about a couple vacationing in Mexico. They stumble upon a deeply unsettling ritual uh, and a catacomb where mummified bodies are displayed. And the wife uh, of this couple, in this couple, that she's horrified, and she becomes obsessed with the idea that she, in fact, will be the next in line to be displayed among these mummified corpses. Uh, up next, uh, number three. The Watchful Poker Chip of H. Matisse. Uh, uh, this is about a boring man who suddenly becomes the talk of high society, high society uh, especially in the art scene, uh, when he places an ornamental poker chip in his eye socket. Uh, but of course, as he learns, being a living piece of art kind of has its drawbacks. Uh, and then we have... Uh, true pure horror tale i would call it with number four skeleton this story uh, it literally gets under your skin it's about a man who becomes increasingly aware and terrified of his own skeleton and his fear leads him to consult a shady specialist <laughs> and this has dire consequences for the patient then we've got the jar number five in the collection it's about a man he buys a jar there's something unidentifiable floating in it. And he buys it for $2, but it quickly becomes the focal point of the community, this jar. And uh, as everyone sees something different when they gaze into its uh, murky uh, depths, and uh, this then eventually reveals their own fears and obsessions. Great, great tale, really. And then we've got number six, The Lake. Uh, this is kind of a melancholic tale. It's about a man who revisits a childhood lake where he used to play with a girl who drowned. Um, but uh, definitely one of uh, Bradbury's uh, more uh, sensitive tales. It's uh, finely crafted. Really great piece of uh, short literature there. And then we've got number seven, The Emissary. This is about a, a bedridden boy who, this is a great story. This is not really horror, but a little bit. Um, but it's about this little boy who sends out his dog, um, into the outside world and the dog brings back sense and experiences that the boy can uh, experience with his own senses. So there's a lot of love and longing in this tale, very reminiscent of Bradbury's other works as well, 
Um, so all summer and a day, things like that. <clears throat> and then you've got Touched with Fire, number eight. Um, this story is about two men. They believe they can predict death. And they warn a woman that she's touched with fire. Um, and uh, this, yeah, uh, I shouldn't spoil these tales too much, but it's a really good good story as well. I think it's also known as Shopping for Death, another title for this story. Uh, sometimes some Bradbury stories will find their way into some of his later collections. And then we've got one that a Twilight episode was filmed of, uh, was based on The Small Assassin. That's number nine. Um, it's about new parents. They're terrified of their own baby, believing that he's intentionally trying, well, the mom, believing that he's intentionally trying to kill them. Uh, and then we've got number 10, the crowd after a car accident. This is a very scary story, uh, especially if you've got claustrophobia uh, or fear of crowds. <laughs> so after a car accident, the protagonist notices that the same crowd of people always appear at the scenes of these accidents. So, um, yeah, are they just rubberneckers or is there something more sinister going on? Great story. And then we've got Jack in the Box about a boy who lives in a secluded mansion. This is number 11. And his mother tells him that uh, he can never go outside, never talk to anyone. He has to stay uh, inside because the world is going to end on, I think, it's his 10th birthday. And, um, you know, this little boy, I think his name's Edwin. He grows up believing all of this until his reality is rudely revealed. And then we've got number 12, Scythe which is about a man who inherits a farm and a, and a giant scythe. Uh, and then eventually he has to take up the mantle of, get this, the actual Grim Reaper. So really, really great and atmospheric and very disturbing. And um, uh, one of the stories that I always remember vividly in my mind. And then we've got Uncle Einar. And this is a bit of a whimsical story. Uh, it's about a man with green wings like a bird. He's he's from a, a type of family which is reminiscent of the Adams family or of the Munsters or something like that, that that creeps up in at least two or three of Bradbury's tales. And in this collection later on, there will be another story that um, features him, but not as the main character. So a, a very whimsical tale. A joy to read, really. And then we've got number 14, The Wind. This is classic horror. It's about a man stalked by the wind. That's all I'm going to say. A man stalked by the wind. And then we've got number 15, The Man Upstairs. This is about a young boy. He suspects that his new upstairs neighbor is not what he seems. Perhaps he's monstrous, more than human. Who knows? Anyway, the boy has to uncover... Uh, the true nature of his upstairs neighbor. And then number 16, there was an old woman. And this story features an old woman who refuses to accept her death. Yeah, she manages to recover her body from the undertakers. Um, a creepy nod, I think, to the, you know, the, the desire of, of uh, every person to sort of transcend death, that there's something after you know this life that we've lived at the moment anyway it really makes you think so worth reading and then we've got number 17 the cistern uh this is a story about women who believe that uh, this this underground cistern in the town uh sort of 
contains another world, you know, so all the lost loves, all the what ifs in life might exist down there. Um, it's, it's, it's a fantastic story. And then Homecoming, this is the story I referenced earlier, which is about uh, this family of, of monsters, this Adams family like kind of monsters, this uh, brood of people who come home uh, for this anniversary or for this uh, reunion. Um, and it's about this boy called Timothy, who's kind of like Lily Munster. She's the o he's the only normal person in the family, but he wishes he was a monster. And how he gets bullied by some of his cousins and siblings. And then finally it culminates with number 19, The Wonderful Death of Dudley Stone. Which is about a writer uh, who inexplicably decides to quit at the peak of his career. Not much horror there, but... Still, if you look at it as Bradbury substituting himself for the writer, it's an interesting experiment. Great collection, fantastic Halloween reading, and uh, amazing uh, autumn um, masterpiece that you could sample any time of the year, really. You don't have to wait for Halloween. All right, so that brings us to the end of another episode of The Long Box of Darkness. Uh, we've taken a bit of a tour from Charlton Comics to the, from the pulpy goodness of those old tales to the really twisted corridors of Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue. Uh, and we finally ended up landing in Halloween country with The October Country by Ray Bradbury for our weird fiction finale. So um, thanks for listening, constant listeners. Thanks for returning to The Long Box of Darkness. I really appreciate your patronage. Um, everything must come to an end, but hopefully this sh sh episode has, but not the show. And we'll continue that. So head on over to darklongbox.com for a podcast addendum post and also for other articles and blog posts on all topics related to horror, especially comics. But there's also lots of movies, TV shows, and weird fiction as well. Um, but before we go, let's quickly talk socials. If you want to stay in the loop on what's happening on the Long Box of Darkness, you can either subscribe on the blog, uh, of course, follow the podcast, but we're also on Twitter, which is now X. I'm still posting quite a lot on there because I've, I've built up a following over there and I'm reluctant to let them go, but also because there's a lot of friends remaining on X. I'm on Mastodon, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Instagram, all under the handle dark long box. Um, so, I mean, follow me if you want. I'll follow back. I'll retweet your stuff. If it's horror related, comic book related, even if it's non-horror related, I'm into sword and sorcery, fantasy, all kinds of stuff. So um, tag me and I'll definitely give you a boost. Uh, let's face it, you know, the world's a better place with a bit of uh, darkness in it, isn't it? So that's why I'm hoping you'll return to the corporate corners of the long box of darkness for more horror uh, possibly in a couple of days time so until that time though keep turning those pages keep pushing play on those podcatchers and most importantly keep exploring those shadowy corners of comics art film and fiction that the mainstream culture sometimes overlooks so with that this is Herm signing off. Sweet screams for your friends. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>